Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. The scripture reading this morning before the lesson will come from Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Please be seated. Would you open God's book, please, to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to begin in the second verse. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. And may I tell you how happy I am to see you here. We have so many people who are visiting today. Welcome. You're at a place today where you will always be welcome. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. He's writing with chains, he says. And what's wonderful is that, in a great example for us, he's, he's still thinking about souls. And so let's begin reading in verse 2, and then I'll launch the lesson. Continue in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that is, Paul and Timothy, that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains that I might make it manifest, even as I ought to speak. Manifest says, it means clear and plain, where they'll understand it. Five, walk in wisdom toward those who are outsiders, redeeming the time. Now, he, he says, I want you to pray for us for these reasons. Open the door, that God will open the door so that we'll be able to teach more people about Jesus. And then he says to them, I want you to walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, those people who are outside. Now, he's not talking outside of a, of a church building. He's talking about outside of Christ. Now, bear in mind that in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, remember, we're baptized into Christ. This is so critical, this language. We're part of a family, the family of God, and people who are outside of Christ are not yet in that family. And the objective of the passage is to say, we want to help them get in the family. But here's a clean line of demarcation. Outside of Christ, people are lost. They're the outsiders. They're outside. People in Christ, in, in the body, in the family, and the way that you get into Christ, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, is by being baptized. Now, that sets the table for our verse for today, which really is verse 6. The rest of the sermon comes off of verse 6. Let your speech... Now... He's talking about how we can best bring people into the Lord, into Christ. And he, he says speech has a lot to do with that. So let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. What does it mean to let your speech be with grace? And our first reaction may be, well, it means that we should speak in a way that is gracious. Well, I suppose that's true, but that's not the point, really. This same idea is used in a couple of different places, and I'm going to show them to you, but 
the Greek word means that, that you've been influenced by Jesus Christ and by His grace on you. Is that true? Is that true about you? So, turn a page to Colossians 3 and verse 16, and it says that when we sing, as we've done this morning, are you ready for this? We sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. It's the same Greek word, and it means that I sing as one who has been impacted by the grace of God on my life. The grace of Jesus Christ has so influenced me that when I sing, I'm singing with that grace. I'm thinking about that grace. It's influenced me. And so I sing, and it shows in my singing. When I think about the speech that I will use, it's the same thing. I, I, I should speak with grace in my heart. In Ephesians 5 and 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And I'm going to make reference to this some more later, but don't let anything corrupt come out of your mouth, but that which imparts grace, same word, same word. That which imparts grace. I, I, I've got to be careful about the way that I talk because my objective is that the people around me would, be, would also be influenced by what I've got. What I've got is an appreciation for the reception of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That grace to me has impacted my life. And it shows up in how I sing. It shows up in how I worship. And it shows up in how I talk. And that's applicable not just how I do in this room with the Christians, but in this passage it's talking about outsiders. It influences that. And then he says this, and this is just so powerful. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Now that puts a great burden on you. That, that puts it squarely on your shoulders. What it means is that you've got to recognize the difference between words that are appropriate and words that are inappropriate, words that are offensive and words that are not. And, and you make sure that, that you are demonstrating the grace of God in your life and that your speech, you know, it's, you know what seasoned with salt means? Salt is, uh, salt is a blessing to food, isn't it? How many things can you think about right now that, you, that just w wouldn't be very good to eat, but salt just uh, awakens the flavor of the food? And, and everybody in this room understands that, and that's why I guess it's such a powerful illustration. You be careful in the way that you speak that that's how you, you talk. Your words are like that. Now, how, how are you and I doing on that? How are we doing? Words are impactful. Words are important for these reasons. Let's put up this first slide. Because words reflect my heart. That's why it matters. And I, you know, you think that, you, you might think that the words that you speak, they just start and end right here, right? That's not true. They start with your heart. And so, out of the abundance of the heart, Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why they're so weighty. Come from your heart. That's the origin, the, the or, origin of them. Number two, because people jo uh, judge Christians by their words. I'm not saying it's the only way people judge Christians, but I declare to you, you're not going to get around this one. People identify us by our words and our profession of Christianity at work or at school or wherever we happen to spend our time. They're going to believe or not believe that profession, at least in part, by how we talk. Three, once, oh, let this one soak in. Once spoken, they're really resistant to erasure. 
Uh, we're going to talk about some, that some more in a few minutes too, but the point is that mm, especially in offensive words, harsh words, cold words, it's one thing for me to speak them. It's another thing for me to try to bring them back, and you're not going to unring the bell. You can't. They just resist erasure. And then four, I'm a Christian. And this is the point of the passage. I'm a Christian, and therefore I, I cherish the cause of Christ, and I declare right now, I don't want to do anything in my life that diminishes from people following Jesus Christ. And my words could do just that. People could walk away from me, relationships, conversations with me, and if my language is bad, their, uh, their attraction to Christianity could be diminished. That takes my breath away. That is the last thing in the world that I would want to happen. So what I want to do, and I hope this will be a very practical sermon, let's talk about our words. Six different kinds of words that we ought to avoid, all right? So it's practical. It's a little bit negative, I guess, but it's practical. The first one is, and this one's going to be, I think, the easiest one, backbiting, or flattery, rather. I'm sorry, flattery. I, I picked this one to start first with because... It may be the easiest one to hear, so it's going to get a little tougher as we go. What's the difference between flattery and a compliment? Well, I think there's a big difference. A, a genuine compliment has no negativity attached to it. It's just, it's just a, something that's healthy. It's good, and everybody appreciates a compliment. It builds up, and it exhorts, and, and it encourages. That's, that's a good thing. Flattery is not like that. Flattery is, is, um, is manipulation. And sometimes we use the words interchangeably, but to strictly speaking, they're not. Flattery has a hidden agenda behind it. I want something from you. And so the compliments get kind of heavy in order to try to, to accomplish my hidden purpose. It's interesting to me that, that you find this in 1 Samuel 15. That's probably a good illustration of it. And Absalom wanted his father's throne, David's throne. And so Absalom gets to the the head gate, and he sits there each day, and he waits for people to come in. Now, when people have cases to bring before the court, the Supreme Court is the king. But David's getting old. He's not able to see everybody, and so there's a weakness there, and Absalom sees that, and he figures he could move in on David's throne. So Absalom stays outside the gate there, and people come in, and when he, he realizes there's somebody who have a case, they have some sort of a case, he says... Uh, uh, hey, let me meet you. I want to meet you. He's very much a politician. Where are you from? And, uh, and then he talks, talks about himself. Where they, they're, so he builds sort of a relationship. And, and, oh, I see you're coming to have your, your case heard. Well, I don't know if you'll be able to get heard or not. The king may or may not be able to. But I sure do wish that he would appoint a deputy. If he appointed a deputy, well, like, <laughs> like me, for example, I would, I would hear your case because your case is, well, it would just be so important to me. And I can assure you that if I was in this position, well, you would get justice because, you see, my heart, my heart extends to you. And I know you need justice and you're not getting justice. And if I were the one, if I were in that position, and then the man, I guess, would bow down and kiss toward him because he was the king's son, I don't know, but... You can, you can imagine, and the, the, the text leans toward this, that Absalom would lift him up and embrace him. And the Bible says that the people were drawn toward Absalom. The heart of the people were drawn toward But see, it was an agenda. So there's a great example of what flattery is. 
In Proverbs chapter 7, you have a similar thing, but this is with a harlot. And the Bible says that, that the harlot with her flattery, she entices him. She's got an agenda. She, she tells him things, try to build up his ego, and she compliments him like he's somebody. And the objective, of course, is his money. Now, here's an interesting one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. And the Apostle Paul just briefly says, we did not use flattery as a cloak when we were preaching the gospel. We didn't have any hidden, hidden agendas. We didn't try to butter you up. That wasn't what this was about. And so there you have it. Flattery is something beyond compliments. And we ought to avoid it. The Bible is very, very harsh against the idea of flattery, to misuse people, to manipulate people with, uh, by feigning compliments. Now, here's number two, is backbiting. What's interesting about this one to me, and we, I don't know if we use this term, but you know what it means already, and it's the idea of doing people injury behind their back. It's the idea of, well, the, the Hebrew word is found 25 times. 20 of those times in the Old Testament is translated spy or spying. Now, you've got to put those together in your mind, connect those dots, but the idea is that it's, that it's, some, it's a sucker punch. It's that, that somebody would approach somebody from behind to try to do injury to their character. And so you find it in Psalm 15, one, uh, 1 through 3, and who can dwell in the house of God, the mountain of God? And it's a person who doesn't backbite with his tongue. Backbiting and gossip are similar. They're, they're sort of first cousins. But, but there's a difference. You, you should get this. Gossip is sinful. You already know that. But gossip is that I just happen to know things about you, information, maybe unseemly information. And I, I don't own the information, but I want to tell it. I like to tell it because people will listen to me. And it's just wonderful, interesting conversation to tell the neg negative things about people. It's not that I really have an objective in my heart of trying to help this person. That's not what it's about. Elders in the church talk about people's problems, but it's not gossip, right? That's not gossip. Gossip isn't just talking about people's problems. It's, it's telling things that I don't own for the privilege or the pleasure of telling them. And people, people will listen if you whisper something, right? But, but you take that another level, and then you'll have backbiting. And backbiting is that I want to do injury to you. It's not just that I enjoy telling it. It's that I have a deliberate purpose of injuring you. A couple of girls, teenage girls, were in the restroom at the uh, rest restaurant, and they were standing in front of the mirror doing whatever girls do, and one of them said to the other, well, about a third girl, I don't like her, nobody likes her. At which time, one of the stall doors opened, and that very girl about whom they were speaking bolted out of that restroom. She was hurt. That's backbiting. And, and the Bible says... Don't do it. Don't do it. Here's number three. This one's going to be obvious to you too, I think, and that is lying. Lying. The best way to see lying and to feel the weight and blackness of lying is not to, not to imagine yourself telling a lie because you can minimize the impact of that. What you need to do to really feel this is to imagine somebody lying to you in a matter that is significant, some matter that matters. Some matter that matters, and they lie, and you have to reap the benefit of that. And then you feel it. Now, 
When you get to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and following, there are six things the Proverbs writer says that God hates. The second one on the list is a lying tongue. I got to love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and 37 about this. He said, now Christians, you disciples, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything that comes more of this is, is from the evil one. Just tell the truth. Just always, just always tell the truth. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says, if a man will love life and see good days, you know what you can do? You can get into to lying, and what happens is you're going to ruin your life. You will absolutely become your worst enemy if you practice lying. He that loves life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Now get this last part. And his lips that they do not deceive. I preached a sermon a while back about reasons that people lie. And they're very diverse. And you can go through Scripture and read about a lot of people who lied. And, and uh, let's, let's review that. Here's the reason. I'm just going to give you a smattering of them. Why do people lie? The Cretans, Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, says they lied because it was just habitual. They're, they're always liars. That was just the nature of the culture. You ever know anybody that habitually lied? Just didn't think a thing about it. Just became, just became part of him. He, he, was just, he was just a liar. He didn't lie. He lied when he didn't really have much temptation. That's just, just how he did. Cain lied to protect, protect himself in Genesis chapter 4 after he killed Abel. Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39 lied to avoid the shame and disgrace of what she had done in making an, an advancement to Joseph. And an eye Sapphira wanted to make themselves look better. Did you ever know anybody who would embellish stories? We sit around and we tell stories at the table to one another, and we enjoy that. And one story leads to another. And sometimes, sometimes you know it's a temptation to embellish that. You, you, actually, actually, the distance is about 50 feet, but it might be five, five miles in my story, right? And I can, I can exaggerate that, and it just makes me look a little better. And that would be similar to Ananias Sapphira. They wanted, to, they wanted to tell something that would make them look better than what reality was. And then Genesis chapter 12, you have Abraham who lied about Sarah. He did that to avoid conflict. Did you ever have pressure hit you pretty hard? And if you tell the truth, you're going to have some conflict smack you. And so you find it convenient to tell a lie. Let your speech be with grace. Seasons with salt. Here's number four. Bitter words spoken in anger. I told you this was going to ratchet up. This one gets a little closer to where we live. How, uh, how are you doing on this one? Bitter words spoken in anger. Ephesians 4 and 26 nails it. He says, be angry and sin not. I don't think, I don't think anger is, is a wrong thing. Our Lord got angry. Anger is a, is a natural emotion that God put inside of human beings, and sometimes we get angry. I'm just, I'm just still responsible for my actions and my words, even if I'm mad. Now, that's the rub right there. I talked to a dear friend of mine recently about this subject, and uh, he, he confided in me. He said, you know, when I, when I blow my stack, he's a good man. When I blow my stack, and I sometimes say things, and you could tell that, that he didn't want to say those things. But, and, and this is probably a very common thing. And, and he, he, he said, but then later, I don't even remember all that I said because I was angry. 
And probably most people in this room can sympathize with some level of that. And what's the resolution? What's the answer to that? And the answer is that whatever it is that keeps you from doing even worse things or saying even worse things, you've got to call on that and build that up. We've just got to put the line at a different place. The best way to, to appreciate about angry, bitter words is not to think about how it feels when you say them, but how it feels when people say them to you. And the pain that can be caused from that. Another friend of mine said recently on this subject, he said, Glenn, do you know, are you aware of the fact that there are marriages where when when they have a disagreement, they settle them at a very angry, loud level, that's just their way? And I really hadn't thought about that. But I tell you this, I, I pity people whose marriage is like that because, because of what I said at the beginning, which is that words are weighty. They're important because they resist erasure. Bad, harsh, mean words, contemptuous, pejorative words have a way of hanging on in the minds of the people who have heard them. Number five. We're going to have six of these. This, one, this one's very, very common, and it's become increasingly common. It's filthy words. Let's talk about filthy words. I, I read an article the other day that said that, that foreigners, I don't know, I don't, you can read anything, I guess, but the article, the person has done research in foul words, foul language. I'm not even sure he was opposed to it. I expect he was in favor of it. But his, his observation was that there are countries away from U.S. right now where people more commonly in conversation, they use foul language all the time. And he said partly because they watch U.S. movies and they believe that's how Americans talk all the time. I don't know if that's true or not, but... It sure has a ring of logic to it, doesn't it? Foul language that I'm talking about, filthy words, are words that have to do with, and I'm not going to say any of them, I'm not going to offend this crowd, of course, but, and, and I don't use the, that language, but it has to do with sometimes um, bathroom restroom things, it has to do with human anatomy, it has to do with sex, sometimes it has to do with with words that would be considered biblical or, or religious in nature. And, and what's interesting is, and you know this, is that those kinds of words have legitimate terms. There are legitimate terms for all of that and used in, in a proper way and in a proper setting. None of those would be bad words. There are words for all of those things that are appropriate. But then there's also the kind of words that are intended, now you've got to grasp this, they're intended to be offensive. They're, they're intended to have shock value. That's what makes them filthy words. They're for the purpose of shock. And a lot of teenagers, I'm sure not true about our teenagers, but a lot of teenagers use them because they want to feel like they're grown up. And this is adult language. The irony of that, of course, is that they just show that they're really immature because they can't think up good enough words to express themselves without using garbage, right? So... I'm not really preaching to you except to say, don't do this. Okay. People want to say something, and they want to say it with bright red lights flashing. And so they use profanity. They use the filthy words. 
And, and I must say this, and we've talked about this some before, that, that filthy words d- d- change over the years. Um, Colossians 4 and 6 says, I, don't, I want you to let your speech, make sure your speech is seasoned with salt. 1 Samuel 20 and verse 30. Uh, you remember when um, David was being pursued by Saul? Let's go to the next slide. And, and Saul wanted him dead. Saul believed that David was going to make a move to take his throne. David was going to have his throne, but not because he was pursuing it, but because God wanted him to have it. But Saul, Saul wanted the blood of David. And so Jonathan, Saul's son, was David's best friend. And so Saul had his regular feast day. David wasn't there, and Jonathan made an excuse for David. The next day, Saul observed that David wasn't there. Jonathan, where's David? And Jonathan gave some benign reason why David couldn't be there, and Saul just lost it. Now, you probably, uh, many of you or most or all of you will remember the anger of Saul. And here it is. Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Well, what I hadn't considered till I was preparing this lesson is that what the translators did was to take those vulgar words and, and they softened them with these words. I can assure you that, and of course you're talking about translation, you're talking about different years and times and all of that, different jargon, but what Saul said was purely vulgar. What he said was out of rage and anger and it was vulgar. Go back one slide for me, please. That's why Ephesians 4 and 29 says this. And you say, well, well what is it then, Glenn, if it's, if it's just another way to say something? Okay, albeit shocking, albeit vulgar, albeit ugly. I mean, words are words. This is such a big deal. The answer is that standing between us and saying foul words like this, the filthy words, are a couple of verses. And the first one is Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, which says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. That seasoned with salt is absolutely a term that means don't use filthy language. Don't use these foul words. Those don't need to be part of how you talk. But the second one is Ephesians 4 and 29. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but that which imparts grace to the hearers. The same thing about this grace thing that we talked about a while ago. Corrupt means, are you ready for this? Putrid and rotten. Don't let any putrid, rotten speech come out of your mouth. I'm telling you, what you it's true. It's true that, that those words change from generation to generation. It's true that, that words that have shock value or don't. I've said before that the King James translation has a couple of words in it that I don't use I, because there are other ways to say those things that are not offensive or vulgar, but the ones they were using back then changed, and now they are vulgar, and so I don't use them. James 3 and verse 2 says that, that we must be careful about how we talk. All right, here's the last category. And you knew we, of course, needed to come here. 
about using God's name in a profane way. I, it's really interesting how often when you're in public, and all of us are some, are often, uh, it's really interesting how many people use God's name as an exclamation or just a note of frustration. Sometimes it's because they're just really delighted about something, and they'll just shout the name of God. And sometimes they're very angry at somebody or something, and they'll attach the word damn to the name of God, and they'll curse. Now, get what the Bible says, and you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, and it's interesting that, that right there among things that are, we'd consider them big sins, and adultery, and thou shalt not steal, and that sh- thou shalt not covet, and all of these different things is this one. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, what is, what is to take God's name in vain? What does that mean? Well, this may help. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, when Jesus gives the model prayer, he says, I want you to pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The opposite of profane is to hallow. And, and it means, of course, to hold in the highest esteem with reverence. To hold his name with reverence. It's the opposite of profaning his name. In James 3 and verse 10, he talks about consistency. And this one hits all, everybody in this room, all of us, including me, right between the eyes on this subject. He says, out of the, out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. And then he says, that ought not to be. That's just wrong. He says, it doesn't make any sense. It's like a, like a stream of water. And, and does a stream produce bitter water and sweet water at the same time? How, how can we do this? It's inconsistent. And of course, that's right. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in 28, he says that, wherefore, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the church, the Lord's kingdom, the church. And it cannot be shaken. It's going to last until the trumpet blows. It'll always be here. He says, let's, let's serve him with reverence, with godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We serve him with reverence. How are you doing on your reverence? One of the things that I, I, I worship in different congregations through the year, primarily here, of course, because this is my place, and I love our, the way we do worship here. I love the way we do worship. I love the way that we sing. I love the way that we, you know, you come into this room and we, when we're, before worship starts, there's a lot of the sound of Christians going on, right? The sound of Christians. I love that. Chatter and laughter and hugging and all of that. But when worship starts in this room, except for our sweet babies, everything gets quiet. Because we've come here for a purpose. I don't know how to eat the Lord's Supper in a more reverential way than we do in this room. Do you? We take time. We're sober. And when we sing, we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. It's lively and it's heart, it's heart from the heart, but it's reverential. And Hebrews says in chapter 12, that we ought to do that. We ought to, because we're talking about the Almighty God. Now, the very idea that we would then, out of, out of anger or surprise or shock or just exclamation, that we would use God's name in a profane way is just a country mile away 
from what all this teaches. It is just inconsistent with it. And we mustn't do it. 1 Peter 3 and 15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. You know what sanctify means? It means set apart for holy purposes. And so his name is so far, it's so far set apart that I will not use it. I will not use it when I don't really mean to reference the Almighty God in heaven. And sometimes I'm hearing the name of Jesus. Are you sometimes hearing people use the name of Jesus in an exclamation? I just, it's not worse. It's it's just not worse. I think that it's just a little more shocking maybe because in my life I've heard people use God's name more often than I have Jesus. And I mean, these people have to know that what they're doing is profane when they use the name of our Lord Jesus, right? Philippians 2 says, beginning in verse 9, that that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in the earth, things under the earth. At the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the Apostle Paul was talking about how we Christians affect people who are on the outside. That is, people who are not in Christ. They're, they're lost. And, and what we want to do is live our lives in such a way as to make the gospel beautiful, appealing, and that the way we talk can distract from that. And so he says, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. So here's the last slide, and here's the last thing I want to do in this sermon. So what can I do? What can I do about this in my own life? How can I make this practical for me? One, practice holistic Christianity. By holistic, I mean turn loose with both hands and just be a Christian. Make sure that your Christianity affects every part of your life, and that includes, of course, the words that you say or that you will refuse to say. I just won't talk like that. I don't use that language. Two, pray that God will give you an awareness of your words so that it's not just governed by how calm or how upset I am or how angry I am. Three, if there have been words or times that you said things that now you're ashamed of, be sure to ask His forgiveness. And four, practice Letting your speech be with grace. Practice speaking words that do good and not harm. Words of encouragement. Are there people who could be helped by my words? Encouragement, comfort, edification. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto thee, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You've been very kind to listen, and I appreciate that. I'm so glad you're here this morning to worship God, that we can, I just think it's a wonderful thing to be blessed like we are, to have a group of Christians the size of this group, and and we're on the same page. We've come because we love Jesus Christ. We've come because we really want to worship our God and please Him, and I'm grateful for you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. I wonder if there's someone here who hasn't obeyed the gospel. Now, the way the the word that Paul would use in our text today is outsiders. And the fact is that you need to be inside. You need to be in Christ. And the Bible says that we're baptized into Christ. And to become a Christian, you must repent of your sins. I can't live like that anymore. Now, you're not going to be perfect, but you're going to strive every day to be what he wants you to be. That's the heart change that brings about change in your actions. And confess his name. I might not have thought of this, but Romans 10 and verse 10, the Lord put it in there. 
I've got to confess his name. Sometimes it meant putting your life on the line because the climate was so much against Christ. I believe that Jesus is God's son. May I ask you a question? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? If you do, then you're a candidate for baptism. You can be immersed in water in response to the one who said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And the Bible says that when we're baptized, we're baptized into the death of Christ and into Christ. And that when we come up out of the water, we walk in newness of life. I know exactly when I was saved. I know the moment I was saved. I came up out of that water to walk in newness of life. You can be a Christian and walk with Christ. There's no better life in this world. Maybe you need the prayers of Christians today, and we'll be so happy to do that. Whatever the need is, if we can help you, we'd like to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.